the second half of the message. Uh, as most of you already know, this is the second message that we're delivering on Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And as Carlton mentioned last week, we are doing this in order to give you a better understanding uh, of what we believe at Grace Fellowship about communion. To revisit his introduction last week, from last week, most of our understanding about communion, about the Lord's Supper, has been shaped by our tradition of taking it. So uh, how we took it, or the frequency when which we took it growing up, or for a large part of our life, uh, will have had formation or had be formed about the way we feel about this this time. Um, it, it forms opinions in us as you do things, as traditions are, are made, and those kind of things. But here at Grace Fellowship, uh, for most of the church's life, communion has been taken once a month. And if you didn't know, this is uh, more often than most of the churches that surround us. Maybe it's more often than you took it growing up. Uh, but for some, it's it's less often than you took it growing up. Uh, there are, we do have some among us that took it every week growing up, coming out of different traditions that, that did that. So in all of us, there are things we like and don't like about the frequency and the way in which we receive communion. And I would say that for the majority of folks who are Grace Fellowship people here this morning, uh, you like the way that we do it just fine, right? And so you're probably wondering, why are we even talking about this? Um, well, let me be transparent because... Honestly, I don't know any other way to be. Um, there have been conversations among your pastors about having communion on a weekly basis. All right. <gasps> I hope that doesn't unsettle anyone. Uh, but if it does, then please come talk to me and the other pastors after service. We would love to have conversation about this. In fact, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll set aside the whole next week uh, as we eat turkey to talk about it. All right. Uh, we, we love conversation. We believe that's how we grow in understanding of things. Um, but I do want to, uh, you to listen to me about closely about what I am saying and not saying this morning. First, I'm not saying that a decision has been made to have weekly communion. While the pastors have been discussing the idea, we have not made a decision. I want to be very clear about that. These messages are not intended to be a sly way of pushing weekly communion. Rather, these messages are to teach biblically about communion, okay? Now, I'm going to be more transparent, okay? I'm not a robot. Uh, I'm a person just like you. I'm one of your pastors, and I have opinions and thoughts. And when I stand up to teach the Bible, it's next to impossible for those opinions and thoughts to not influence the things that I say. Now, I hope and pray that my opinions and thoughts that I share from this pulpit do arise from the Scriptures. In fact... When I go to write sermons, it is not primarily or even secondarily my aim to share with you my thoughts and opinions. It is my aim to say what the scriptures say. That's it. Uh, this will give you life and hope. But I say all of that in order to clarify my aim for this morning. Last week, Carlton rightly noted that the scriptures do not explicitly give us a frequency as to which we take communion. It's not there. So that means local pastors, local pastors especially with no hierarchy, we are an autonomous church, we have to decide what is right for our people. You with me? That's the question we have to decide. How often should our flock be taking communion? And as we analyze this question, here's some things we're looking at. First, what does the rhythm seem to be in church history? 
We want to look at the scriptures, maybe beginning with Acts, uh, that I do remind you is to describe what the early church was doing, not necessarily to prescribe what we should be doing. We want to look at Acts and observe how often were they taking it. We want to look at Paul's letters for clues. We want to also examine the last two millennia of church history. What does is, what is it seem to be that the norm is there? And why are they doing it with that frequency? We want to also examine, as Carlton mentioned last week, the Reformation, uh, where it seems that communion uh, began changing quite a bit, or how we took communion was changing quite a bit. Carlton mentioned last week how Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli all saw the supper differently. And this is the second thing we want to look at, is what do we believe about this meal? Carlton shared last week that if we believe communion is just about mere remembrance, then in frequency will probably be more of what we lean toward if it's just mere remembrance. He actually made the excellent point of saying that when we think of the Bible as just a book that tells us about God, then we will probably read it infrequently because once you've read it, you've done been there, did that, right? But when we think of the Bible and when we think of communion and when we think of even prayer, as God's ordained means of communing with him, we will lean more towards frequency in all three of those things. Because for the believer, communion with God is precious to us, isn't it? So that's the second major thing we want to look at. What do we really believe about this sacred event? Now, all of that, ha I hope, has put all the cards on the table except one. Um, some of you might be asking yourself, I wonder how often Corey thinks we should take it. Uh, and uh, some of you think you already know, uh, but I always want to just be honest with you. Um, and so in preparing for this message, I reached out to the other pastors and I asked them, is it okay if I share with you where I stand on this issue? Because I felt that it is necessary that you know where I'm at as I preach you this message uh, on this topic. So I do personally believe that weekly communion is best, all right? So as I'm preaching this morning's message, while being completely faithful to what the scriptures say about communion, everything that I say will have that lean toward it. In, in fact, just to be really honest, in some ways, I will be presenting you today a case for weekly communion, all right, that I believe are from the scriptures. But I would ask you to remember what's already been said. The scriptures do not provide a frequency. Therefore, to again quote Carlton from last week, we are faithful if we do this once a week, once a month, or once a year. But also remember that our jobs as pastors is to make that decision for our specific flock. You with me? So there is some leeway here, and that's why we're here. Now, as we get to the text and as I begin preaching, I would ask this of you. No matter where you stand on the frequency discussion, will you pray with me right now that as I preach this morning, you would be able to hear what I'm saying with an open mind and an open heart, willing to see things from possibly a different perspective. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for, uh, God, the, the sacraments, the means of grace that you've given us that we've already got to celebrate this morning through baptism. God, what a, what a faithful reminder that is of how glorious you are and to save and Father, I pray now as we go to your word and seek to commune with you through the preaching of your word, God, that is what would happen. 
God, I, I, honestly, Lord, I, uh, it is so very secondary in my mind whether or what, what kind of decision is made on weekly communion or not weekly communion. God, my primary aim this morning is that through the teaching of your word, your people would rejoice and behold your glory and fall more in love with their God. Uh, so, Father, would, that, would you please make that happen this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, real quickly, uh, I've asked them in the back to put this screen up. I've got three alliterated points this morning. Uh, if they'll throw those up there, I want you to see these. These are going to stay up for a couple minutes, so if you take notes, you can write these, and then they're going to come down. But, but here's where I'm going this morning. Communion is God's unique way of purifying his church. Number two, God's unique way of proclaiming the gospel. And God's unique way of protecting his children. Uh, someone who read over my manuscript said, uh, I think you're already trying to manipulate there by alliterating points to get Aaron on your side. Um, maybe, all right? <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, I, I do want us to see these. I think this just worked out nicely in, in my head. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. Uh, so let's begin. In 1 Corinthians 5, all right, Paul is addressing the defilement of God's church. Now, when we hear that phrase, uh, maybe the wrong things come to mind. The defilement of God's church, we might think of as someone who is vandalizing, maybe leaving trash in the sanctuary. You shouldn't do those kind of things, right? It's a sacred place. Don't treat his building with respect, all right? But what Paul is addressing uh, in the defilement of God's church is the sin that has taken root in a person's heart and is now causing the rest of God's people, the rest of God's church, to be defiled. You with me? This is a novel idea for us. Uh, we don't think this way because just by our culture and society and as Americans, we are very individualistic by nature. So often when we think of sin, we think of it on merely personal terms. This is my sin. That's your sin. You with me? But Paul doesn't teach that way about sin. Look at the end of verse 6 with me, and we're going to read 6, 7, and 8. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now let's break that down. Paul first says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now I'm not a baker, but I do like to cook. But when it comes to leaven and bread, I did have to do some research here because I had no idea. All right, maybe you're at the same place I am. So let me, let me help you here. A uh, little lesson. When you grind down wheat or other grains into fine powder, you get flour. All right, which is that powdery substance essential in making bread. All right, when you add water to the flour, you get dough. All right, this also might be referred to as a lump of dough. So you've got flour mixed with water, which gives you a lump of dough, all right? And this, we, this is also known as unleavened dough. It hasn't been leavened, all right? If you want that delicious, soft, airy bread that you eat, then what you've got to do is you've got to find a way to leaven that lump of dough. 
To leaven means to make rise, okay? So there are a few different leaveners you can use, a few different substances you can add to the lump of dough to rise, but here's the key. Here's the key. Once you add a leavener like yeast, it will affect the entire lump. And here's why. That leaven, when added to the lump of dough, reacts to certain molecules, and in that reaction, this is chemistry for those of you who didn't know, in that reaction, a gas called carbon dioxide is released, right? So this gas is absorbed by the whole lump, causing all of it to rise. So here's the idea. Once those molecules start reacting and that gas is released, there's no escaping what's being released. There's no way of escaping the, that l- whole lump of being affected. It's very similar to if someone dropped a gas bomb in this room this morning, all of us would be affected. You understand? So Paul uses this example of the leavening process to say that when one sins, the whole body is affected. Wow. The whole body is affected. Church, we are members of one another. Parents, parents, do you know that your sin affects your children? Most of you know and believe that, right? But did you know that my sin affects your children? Josh Kane, did you know that Andrew Acker's sin affects Titus? And I want that to really settle this morning and us not fly over that fact. We are members of one another. And scripture teaches, Paul is teaching here, that your sin, the sin in the body, affects everybody in the body. You with me? That doesn't make you tremble. If that doesn't make you want to radically care for one another, then you're missing it. This is why Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Here in 1 Corinthians 5, what we have is we have a habitual sinner in the body. And Paul's saying, do you not know that his sin is affecting all of you? This must be purified, must be cleansed. But Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And catch this phrase, as you really are unleavened. As you really are. Don't miss that. Paul says that we really, truly are unleavened. He's saying that we really, church, we really, we really are truly righteous. We are truly holy. How? Well, look at the end of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul says, once you have eaten of Christ, you are holy. But remember, what does it mean to eat of Christ? It means to behold him. To delight in him, to believe in him, to trust him. He has been sacrificed. Why? So we can live. So we can live. But the only way to live is to eat and drink of him. Paul says in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of what? Sincerity and truth. It's the exact opposite of malice and evil. 
But the festival that Paul is talking about here is the Lord's Supper. So he's saying, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. The supper that Jesus initiated the night before he was arrested. The meal that all of his followers would now take. It was the meal of his body, symbolized by the bread. And it was the blood, Savior's blood, symbolized by the wine. So at the time of Paul writing this letter, the church is celebrating the Lord's Supper whenever they gather. And Paul here is stating that when they come together to celebrate this meal, their freedom, when they're coming together to celebrate this redemption that their Savior has given them, the eternal life they have through Jesus, he's saying don't do it with sin in your heart. Don't do it with sin in your heart. The impurity that is characterized by malice and deceit is the old leaven. Put that out. But rather celebrate this glorious meal with sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. You know, we're prone to be insincere people. You know that? Not to mention liars, but, but let's just stick with insincerity for a moment. I want to make a confession to you, public confession. Did you know that there have been times on weeks that I'm slotted to preach that I act differently than I would if I wouldn't have been preaching? You know that? Is that too honest? I take this responsibility to stand before you and proclaim God's word to you so seriously that on weeks I do it, it makes me act differently from other weeks. Now here's the hard truth for myself from the Lord. Corey, you are always my messenger, my son, and my ambassador to the world, even on weeks that you don't preach from this pulpit. So why in the world would you act any differently any other week? Why? But let me ask you a question. Do you take special pause to consider your heart on weeks that we take communion? I would hope the answer would be yes. But why? Why do you take special pause on that Sunday? Why don't you take special pause on the other three weeks when you gather with God's church and sit under the preaching of his word? Are those weeks less serious? Church. This supper was meant to be a physical embodiment of the audible gospel. You hear me? The gospel that you and I are called to believe every week is physically represented by this supper. Your response of repentance and faith from the preached word is acted out by your response of eating and drinking the supper. And this is God's unique way of purifying his church. Listen to me. Before Christ, you were, you and I both were leavened bread. Alright? We were leavened bread. Not unleavened. Leavened. The leaven of impurity has already made us leaven at birth, according to the scriptures. And let me tell you something about that. It is scientifically impossible to unleaven leavened bread. Did you hear that? You were leavened at birth, impure at birth, and it is scientifically impossible to unleaven that which is leavened. It's as impossible as it is to be born a second time. 
You can't enter your mother's womb a second time, and you can't unleaven that which has already been leavened. It can't happen unless you eat of the spotless lamb. That's the only way. You have no hope if you don't eat. You have no hope if you don't receive Christ by faith. But when you do, when you do, church, when you receive him, when you eat his flesh and you drink his blood, the old leaven of malice and deceit is miraculously removed from you, and you become the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So that's the call when we gather every week to hear the good news of Jesus from all the scriptures. And upon hearing that good news, to release whatever it is that you picked up that week, which is the act of repentance, and by faith take hold of the body and blood to feast and be cleansed once again. Communion is God's unique way of purifying his church. Secondly, communion is God's unique way of proclaiming the gospel. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians 11 now. The church at Corinth, as we know, as you probably know, had quite a few problems. We have two of Paul's letters where he addresses a lot of them, but we know that there was a third letter that didn't make the cut, right? Uh, perhaps because he wasn't controlled by the Spirit when he wrote it. I don't know. Um, I have those times in my life. Um, he was just done, I guess. But here in chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper again. He brings it up again. This time... He's addressing something else within the church. He's addressing factions within the church. So now look at how he appeals to them in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul tells the Corinthians and us that Jesus instituted this supper in order that through it we would remember him, two things, remember him and proclaim his death until he comes. Now why is that so important? Well, See, church, we can easily become in our gathering about so many other things. In fact, God's people have always habit, had a habit of forgetting God, forgetting about him. And it seems that the Corinthians have forgotten about, it seems that they have not forgotten about gathering because they're obviously doing that, right? They haven't forgot about taking the supper because they're obviously doing that. But what they have forgotten about is Jesus. They've forgotten about Jesus. You say, how's that possible? Well, they've forgotten about the substance of their faith by being distracted with the displays of their faith. I want to say that again. They've forgotten about the substance of their faith by being distracted with the displays of their faith. And so can we, church. Why do we gather every Sunday morning? Answer, to remember Jesus and proclaim his death until he comes. That's the reason, right there in the text. That's why we gather. This Sunday service is not primarily about fellowship, although we need times of fellowship. 
This Sunday service is not primarily about learning, although we need times of learning. This Sunday service is not primarily about evangelism, although we, need, we pray people will be saved. This Sunday service is about remembering Jesus and proclaiming his death. That's the whole point of Sunday service. You know, when we plan services beginning on Monday morning, we first look at the scripture for the week and we ask this question. How does this text reveal Jesus? Now, that's not the only question we ask, but that is the most important question we ask. Because the truth is, church, hear me on this. The truth is that you can preach the house down in a message that people talk about for years. But if you did not reveal the Son of God, the perfect Lamb who was slain, the only hope for the world from these scriptures, then you failed your mission as a Christian preacher. You failed your mission. Christian preachers preach Christ and him crucified so that he would be remembered by his people. And they would proclaim his death until he comes. This is why Paul says, I wanted to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So understand, when you come here on a Sunday morning, you're not mainly coming here to hear good advice and wisdom. Although, guess what? You will end up hearing good advice and wisdom. You're not coming here to do a duty, although there are plenty of duties needing to be done. If you would like to share in some of those, come talk to us. You should be coming to commune with the one and only Jesus. This is the essence of biblical worship. That's what remembering means. Remembering doesn't mean sentiment. Remembering is beholding. Beholding is communing, and communing is God-honoring worship. Now, how is it that we do this on a Sunday morning? How do we proclaim the Lord's death until he remember him? Well, through his word, we hear him call to worship, just like we did this morning. You wonder why we go back and forth doing that. We hear God's word call us to worship him. We sing songs about his greatness, glory, splendor, and majesty, just as we did this morning. Then we hear his word preached that cuts us to the heart by exposing our insufficiency. And then we respond, church, in repentance and faith by physically walking the aisle and receiving his perfectly sufficient body and blood as it has been revealed to us in the scriptures for our forgiveness and salvation. That's how we do it. You see how these beautiful pieces fit together just right? Church, when done right, our Sunday gathering should be an event that you will catch an early flight home just to make. It'll be an event that you feel all out of sorts when you miss. Because it's not just a message that you can listen to the audio of later. No, it's a holy gathering of God's people where they behold their Savior and all of his glory in their redemption as they feast on his grace in such a way that when they leave, they feel like they can fly. That's what this sacred moment is about today. Because here's the truth. No matter how bad your cancer is, no matter how bad life is treating you, no matter how awful the pain that you have to endure, when you behold Jesus as you are gathered with his body and you eat and you drink of him, everything else just seems to pale in comparison. That's why he's given us this awesome gathering. 
Now, I want to take a moment right here and cast a vision for what this might look like if we were to take communion every Sunday. I've heard some say that it seems like a lot to do every service. And that's true. If communion is an entirely different component of our service, I don't think it should be. But this is currently the case. And the reason this is currently the case is because we only get to take communion about 12 times a year, maybe a few more. And with that infrequency, there's always a felt need to be very explicit about every time we do it about what the supper is and why we take it. However, if we took communion every week, it would become our natural response to the good news that we hear preached from the word of God. This means that we would still say a sentence or two about who's invited to take part and who's not in order to fence the table. But the emphasis would be on how this supper, this week, carries the flavor of the message that we just heard. Here's what I mean by that. There will be messages from God's word that leave us wanting to dance and shout. And on those days, we will dance and shout down the aisles. Maybe even high five one another. Our God is glorious and he reigns forever and ever. Let the whole earth sing. We might catch somebody hitting the gritty down the aisle. I don't know. I don't know. Man, wouldn't it be awesome? And for those of you, listen to me, for those of you in here, some of you are like, oh my. I was with him until then and now I'm not with him anymore. Um, But hear me, for those of you that think that such a thing is irreverent, I would call on you to consider the story that we're given in 2 Samuel of David bringing the holy ark of the covenant into his city. The ark that is so holy that when people touched it out of turn, they died. They dropped dead. That holy ark is being brought into the city. And what do we see? The king, the king, what do we see him doing? He's dancing. He's dancing. He's dancing. But do you remember his wife, Mikael? She was filled with anger at his irreverence. But who was incensed? She was. There was no reverence in her heart, just false piety. Now, am I saying that everyone needs to dance? No. Some of you don't ever want to see you dance. You're probably thinking, I don't ever see you dance. (laughs) Dancing may not be your thing, and that's okay, but listen to me here. I would ask of us, this is what I would ask of us, church, that we do not subject everyone else to the posture that you feel is right in worshiping God. This will be a fast track to becoming ritualistic, rote, and meaningless. What is the right posture in worship? Well, it's a heart posture. A heart posture that delights in and stands in awe of our God. A heart that trembles before your God. And this heart posture will produce all kinds of varying outward postures of worship. So every Sunday, the preached word should rightly posture our hearts. And this will give the Lord's Supper a specific flavor. This means that there will be Sundays where you need to sit in your seat 
and pause before coming to this table. And there will be other weeks where you can't get down the aisle quick enough. Through the preaching, we get the specific revealing of Christ through everything. Therefore, when we take the supper afterward, we are receiving physically his body and blood with that specific flavor that the scriptures reveal that day. You with me? So lastly, Paul continues on in verse 27. Check it out. Verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And this is your last point today. Communion is God's unique way of protecting his children. Paul says, if anyone eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. I'm just going to stop right there and deal with that key phrase, unworthy manner. What is an unworthy manner? Well, obviously, as we just said, an unworthy manner is not dancing down the aisles or uh, saying the right words, right? No, taking it in an unworthy manner means to take the supper apart from repentance and faith. To take the supper apart from repentance and faith. Now, Paul isn't talking about non-believers here. He makes that very clear. In verse 32, he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world, okay? So to take the supper in an unworthy manner means to take it physically, to physically this morning walk down the aisle when spiritually you are rejecting Christ. When you're spiritually rejecting Christ and you physically come and take this supper, you've taken it in an unworthy manner. Now, it's important that I get really clear on what Scripture means here because there is some misunderstanding on this issue. The Scriptures do not teach that you have to be worthy in order to come to the table. You hear me? We are all unworthy to come to the table. And this is precisely why Jesus died. Through his sacrificial death, he made a way for us to be Worthy. We're told plainly in Scripture that if we turn from our sin and by faith trust in Jesus alone, we become what? Worthy. Say it, worthy. All right? Why? Because the one we behold, the one we're feasting on is what? Bingo. When we believe upon him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. This is how we're saved. So if you have repented and believed in Christ, then you have been made worthy to come to this table. You're worthy. But, but you must come in a worthy manner. You must come in a worthy manner. You must come just as you did at your salvation, with a heart of repentance and faith. A heart that says, Lord, I cling to nothing else in this world but you. I release all that I have and feast on you. Right? 
This is how we're sanctified, church. We continue to turn from our sin as it is progressively revealed to us through the scriptures. And by faith, we behold Jesus through his word, prayer, and this supper. Communion with him through these three things really and truly give us grace that we cannot get any other way. They really do. So if you have repented and believed, then you have been made worthy to come to the table. Therefore, therefore, continue to repent and believe because this is the worthy manner in which you're called to live and to come to this table. Now, I've heard some of you, I've heard that some of you uh, have not come to the table to take the supper at different times for different reasons. So let me speak on this for a moment. When you come in on Sunday morning and you have sinned against your family or you have sinned against your coworker, or you have sinned against someone even in the body, okay? And through God's preached word, you are cut to the heart and it is revealed to you that you have sinned. You sinned. And, and in your heart, you say, God, forgive me. I've sinned. David said, I've sinned to you alone. Sin against you alone. Forgive me, God. If that's where you're at on Sunday morning, then I will say, do not excuse yourself from this table. Some of you think, well, I've got to go make that right first. No, 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 that's a gross misunderstanding of Matthew 5. A gross misunderstanding. If God convicts your heart of sin and you're broken over your sin and you desire forgiveness, then God says, come and receive my forgiveness. Come and eat and drink and then go with the grace that you have received that empowers you, that enables you to make things right with everyone else. That's what's supposed to happen. You think you're supposed to get right before you come here? You'll never get right. You have no hope of getting right. God's word, Jesus through the supper, enlivens our souls to do right. There's no doing right apart from him. That's the quick way to Phariseeism. Well, I got myself right so I could come to the table. Stop it. Don't do that. But now hear me, but now hear me, if you have grudges in your heart or you have sin in your heart and you are not willing in your heart to step to those things, you're not willing, then you better not come to this table. If you've got stuff in your heart and you know it and you're not willing to step to it, you're not willing to say, oh Lord, I don't know how I can, but I'm willing. I'm just going to come and eat and drink of you, and you'll figure it out, and I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. If that's not your heart posture, then you don't come to this table. But if you're willing, your heart says before the Lord, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know what is going to happen. Then come. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us of our trespasses, just as we forgive those who trespass against us. God's forgiveness in your life should cause you to be able to forgive anyone of any offense. God's kindness through the giving of himself 
should lead you to repentance. And it's at the table every week that we really and truly receive the grace of Christ that enables us to live holy and righteous. But let's turn back to the text real quick. We are told that if we eat and drink this meal, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner, that is without a heart of repentance and faith, then we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. Now remember, that's as children of God. When we partake in an unworthy manner, according to the scripture, it would cause you to get sick and possibly even die. Does that scare you? Does that make you tremble uh, before approaching this table? If not, church, it should. But here's the thing. Because this is such a serious and reverent act, this would cause some of us to not want to take it as often. You go, man, so serious. Why would we do something so serious and so sacred every single Sunday? I actually did have someone come to me this past week and say, it scares me to death to think about taking the Lord's Supper every week. Praise God for the rightful fear in that person's mind. But now listen to me, listen to me. If understanding the sacredness of this supper causes you to want to come to it less often, then you don't understand the supper. You don't truly understand the supper. Our God is holy, and he makes us tremble, but this holiness like a bug to a lamp, we can't stop coming to it. That's the right way. We want to we we draw all the more near. Being God's child is an incredibly serious thing. It is nothing to be lackadaisical about at any time. If you are in Christ, you belong to God, and he has called you to be holy as he is holy. So here's the thing. If you think you can avoid sickness and death by staying away from the table or coming less often, then you're lacking understanding. The table is the only place where you can receive life and health and hope and happiness. We can get so twisted with the way we think, but Jesus tells us plainly. He says, if you're not abiding in me, then what are you doing? You're dying. If you're not abiding in me, you're dying. What this supper assures is if, the, if we take it, Apart from abiding in him, what will he do? He will discipline us. If we come and take this supper on a weekly basis and we're not abiding in him, he will discipline us. He will see to it that we do not continue to fool ourselves by thinking that everything is okay when it's really not. Church, if you're avoiding God's discipline or his discipline scares you, you're not growing it's much like the guys I coach who want to avoid my coaching. They don't understand the nature of it. It's to help them get better. Church, we must welcome God's discipline in our lives because he desires that we become holy as he is holy. As he is holy. And here's the secret to life. You want to know the secret to life? To be holy is to be happy. Hear me. To be holy is to be happy. And this is what God desires for his children because he's a good dad. Church, don't shy away from your father's discipline. It's for your good. It's for your good. So today, 
today we get an opportunity to feast on the lamb who was slain that we might live. We get the opportunity to be made whole again by publicly renewing our faith in Christ as we eat his body and drink his blood. Church, today we have the chance to be purified and washed white as snow. Today we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel as our only hope in life and death. And today we get the blessing of inviting the discipline of God into our lives that we may be holy as he is holy. Isn't that good? Church communion strengthens, enlivens, and makes our worship service more robust. We come here to remember Jesus and proclaim his death until he returns. And this is precisely what this meal is about. So I'm going to ask our worship team now if they will come and make their way to the stage and begin playing. And as we prepare to receive our Savior's body and blood through the supper, if you're here today and haven't trusted in Jesus and been baptized, we would ask you to not come to the table. But we would invite you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today. And come talk to us after the service. Come talk to me. Find me. Find a pastor. Find somebody. Church family, as you physically make your way to the table this morning, I'm going to pray that by faith you would spiritually receive all the grace that Jesus has for you in this meal today. We serve a God who gives us himself to feast on, which makes us eternally holy and happy. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you love us, that you gave your only son, Jesus, who is the perfect spotless lamb, that he would die in our place, God. God, the judgment underneath which we stood, God, was too heavy for us, God. We had no hope. But Jesus comes and lays down his life to remove that punishment, God. Thank you. Thank you that you've removed all damning punishment from your children. Called us your own. And now, God, you are enlivening us. You are sanctifying us. And we thank you for this meal today. We thank you for this gathering. We ask all of this that you would bless this time now and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.